0: Like it happened this morning, I'm just really into the worship and you know enjoying it, and then suddenly I realize, wait, I'm supposed to be up here. <laughs> well, if you'll grab your Bibles, um, you might want to put your finger into Deuteronomy six four, and we'll start there, and then we'll turn forward to Luke. So let's start in just a moment. First, I have to tell you, I am never going to stop telling you what a beautiful church you are. What a beautiful congregation you are. And I'm never going to stop telling you what a privilege it is to be among you, to teach and and co-labor alongside of you. And I'm not, never going to tell Pastor John and and. Pastor Patrick, that I aspire to be like them. So, where I fall short of that, uh, please do tell me because I am genuine in that. Uh, These are men of God proven over decades in their walk, and we're privileged to have them. And as I say, I aspire to be like them. I, I do want to tell you that the Oxford Dictionary defines mystery. In this way, something that is difficult to understand or explain. And I think that's why I got assigned this sermon topic. today. (laughs) As I said this morning, I I actually volunteered for this one. But mystery pretty well describes what we approach this evening. The triunity of God, what we call the trinity. One of my seminary professors, uh, Rachel probably had him too, Dr. Vern Poitras, wrote a book entitled Knowing and the Trinity. He tried in 440 pages to explain the Trinity. And he's one of the smartest men I know. He concluded with something I thought pretty profound. And he said this, quote, Having come to know aspects of the mystery of the Trinity, we may also begin to appreciate what the theologians of previous generations sometimes called the vestigial trinitatis. In other words, the footprints or marks of the Trinity that come in general revelation. And I think he's right. Special revelation, that is the scriptures, Make the Trinity clearer to us, but we're still left with footprints or marks, if you will, of the fullness of the mystery of the Trinity. We see but reflections as we read about in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. And one glorious day we will indeed know more fully. Augustine wrote in his landmark work on the Trinity, entitled De Trinitate, this, In no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. So Dr. Poitras was wise in putting in the foreword to his book this admonition, The Study of Theology, is always an exercise in, quote, cognitive repentance. His point was that progress in understanding always involves a renewal or a changing of the mind in light of divine revelation. So tonight's sermon has elements we all enjoy. There'll be mystery. There'll be great danger, but also riches in truth. So all the more important that we start with prayer. Come, Lord, and be with us as we open your word and receive with grateful hearts and minds your teaching and revelation to us, your created. Steer us away from misunderstanding and wrong thinking and toward orthodoxy as we ponder and meditate afresh in our hearts the wonder of the mystery of you, our triune God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now let's flip over to Luke 3. Give you a minute to get there. I've marked mine knowing I would call attention to it. Luke chapter 3. And verse 21 through 22, Luke three, starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. This is the very word of God given to us, holy, unchanging, eternal, authoritative, and necessary unto salvation. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is arguably one of the most important doctrines of the Bible. And yet, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Trinity means triuneness, which in turn means three-in-oneness. The ancient church father, Tertullian, was the first to use or coin the term Trinity and to begin the process of formulating the doctrine of the Trinity in the early third century. He got it partly wrong, partly right, but, you know, he was going off of uh, human reasoning and the, the need to very carefully understand and discern the meaning of the scriptures. And yet among God's attributes is this enormous topic of the Trinity. To be sure, let's start with the fact, incontrovertible, as we read, there is one and only one God. Paul beautifully uh, illustrated that for us in song. And by the way, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we could have music in Sunday school now. <laughs> the whole of Scripture testifies to this singular fact, as we read a bit ago, the Shema, as it's called in, in Deuteronomy 6 4. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Here's what it sounds like in Biblical Hebrew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That's what they would have heard when they read that in the temple. The Lord's brother James adds this: "You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder." That's James two nineteen. So it's clear we have to go just beyond. An intellectual assent to the idea that God is one. And herein we jump head first into mystery. God is one and yet is triune in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul believed this because scripture proclaims it. He closed his second letter to the Corinthian church in this manner. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You're going to hear that a couple of times this evening. He was speaking of what? The Trinity very clearly. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all record that when Jesus was baptized, the voice of God the Father came from the heavens above and God the Holy Spirit Descended like a dove upon him. That is clearly the Trinity. Jesus Himself tells us that He is God. In John five, in John eight, uh, verse fifty-eight, He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." Well, why is that important? Because when God spoke to Moses. Way back in Exodus three thirteen, he tells God tells Moses his name, and his name, I am, who I am. So Jesus was saying, I am God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They are God. They are all I am, and yet they are also distinct. For example, in Galatians four four, we read. God sent forth his son. Well, the implication of that, of course, is that the one sending and the one sent are distinct entities. Remember I said mystery would abound tonight. And the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and from Jesus. Listen to John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will bear witness about me, Jesus. There you have it, the Trinity. But here we must do exactly what Dr. Poitras warned us that we must do. We must do a bit of cognitive repentance. Many of us have been taught wrong things and believe wrong things about the Trinity. I believe mostly it's unintentional. Uh, in my own um, uh, Sunday school as a, as a young lad, um, teachers would try to use analogies. And those analogies always bring you to heresy. We were just recently at the examination of a candidate for ordination at, at Presbytery. And they said, explain the Trinity to a third grader, was it? Or a, some, I think it was a third grader. You know, some people want to use the water, steam, ice. Uh, No, that will not suffice. That very quickly leads you to heresy. So each of the three persons of the Trinity is God. They are equal in all ways. None of them were created. None of them is subordinate to the others. And each is separate from the others. And yet they're one. Remember what I warned you at the beginning, mystery and danger. But if you stick with me here, I I think we're going to reach some truth and the riches inherent in that truth. We are fully in mystery and any attempted analogy is just not going to work. As I say, it will lead us into heretical theories. So we accept mystery and the profundity of this truth that God is one in three persons. And I personally think That when we really ponder this, never with the goal that we will fully comprehend it, it will lead us, as all study of scripture should, to doxology. Scripture also endorses the idea that the activities or the actions of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are different from one another. Note that throughout the New Testament, we read about the father sending the son with the implication being that the father has planned something. His son is sent to execute that plan and the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the application of Christ's redemption to both believers and to the church. Indeed, all of the works of God, creation, providence, redemption. Consummation involved all three members of the Trinity. My wife and Pastor Patrick's wife were, I guess, texting back and forth about this topic. And Jean said, "Look look at the picture that Kathy sent. And I thought it was really nicely done because it showed something important. The prominence of the father in planning, the son in executing, and the Holy Spirit in applying uh, uh, sanctification and consummation. And in that first chapter of the book of Ephesians, we see this prominence of roles. The Father in electing us, the Son in redeeming us, and the Holy Spirit in sealing us. But I hasten to add, it is not that one and only one member of the Trinity exclusively does a task it's a matter of prominence if you will another important point is the hebrew word used in the old testament i read for you i read it for you a bit ago echad means one in the sense of a compound unity much as in genesis 2:24 where we're instructed that the two husband and wife shall become one flesh Never does the Old Testament use the Hebrew word Yahid, which means one in the absolute sense, to express the unity of the Godhead. So in the very earliest opening of Scripture, we see evidences of the Trinity. You may be asking, well, why not just state it that clearly? And it's because you and I have the advantage of hindsight. They didn't. They had what they had and looked forward. And this is part of what we call of the progressive unfolding of redemptive history, where this became clearer and clearer, foreshadowed for sure in the Old Testament, but clearer in the new. Further, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is used in the plural form. When God speaks of himself, uh, listen to Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's the Trinity alluded to. Genesis 3.22. Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Genesis 11.7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language Isaiah 6 eight. whom shall I send and who will go for us and we could go on all night and I'm happy to but um. <laughs> in the New Testament the doctrine of the Trinity is is explicitly and I think clearly taught as opposed to being alluded to or foreshadowed in the Old Testament we see this in some clear examples. We just read about the baptism of uh, Jesus in Luke 3. We could have picked any, but I chose Luke. Why? He's a physician. He's more reliable. In the the baptismal formula of of Matthew 28, 19, and in uh, in the apostolic benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, we talked about a little bit ago, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion. Of the Holy Spirit. It's right there. So, what we see as we move from the Old Testament to New Testament teaching, as I said, is this progressive revelation of the Trinity, the unfolding of the mystery of redemptive history. It's exciting. I can hardly restrain myself here. Patrick asked, Do you want to stand at the pulpit or have a, you know, I should have probably had the lavalier. But despite all this, despite what scripture teaches, did any of you see this recent national uh, theological survey done by Ligonier Ministries? So they had, I think, was it four or six points that you had to meet in order to say you were an evangelical Christian. So the results I'm about to give you were only for those who endorsed those points and describe themselves as evangelical Christians. A stunning 43% endorsed the idea that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Equally surprising is that 60% believe the Holy Spirit is some kind of a force, but not an actual being. And 73%, 73%, agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This, Perhaps this is why I feel so animated about this topic. Many have been taught wrong things. And if you don't understand this idea of three in one, your theology very quickly falls apart. And you don't have the rock you thought you had. You have, at best, a little gathering of pebbles. Well, we don't want to make these heretical mistakes, nor in thinking that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person, but rather some sort of a force, because to do so means that many verses of Scripture no longer make sense and would directly contradict the teaching of God's revealed word, and the teaching of the apostles. So that can't stand. Remember that, yes, and many of these people do, they take one verse and they take it out of context. But a critical principle of biblical interpretation is that scripture must interpret scripture. We don't take one verse out of context and magnify it to mean everything and everything that contradicts that is somehow wrong. That would be be wrong. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul makes this point. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thought except the spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one, Comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Nobody who isn't God could plumb the thoughts of God. What is this pointing to? The omniscience of the Holy Spirit. And anything omniscient is God. Another heresy we don't want to fall into is in thinking that there are three gods, what people call tritheism. There is only one God in three persons who are one in essence and in nature. Another heresy you commonly see is called modalism. This is the heresy that there is one person who simply appears in three different forms or modes, such as thinking of myself as a father, son and husband, my wife edits my sermon and she wrote, Don't Take That One For Granted. <laughs> Sorry, honey, you're my foil. <laughs> In the opening of his chapter on the Trinity, Herman Bavink, a Reformed theologian, wrote this The seeds that developed into the, into the full flower of New Testament Trinitarian revelation are already planted in the Old Testament. Elohim, the living God, creates by speaking his word, the Logos, and sending his spirit. The world, he says, comes into being by a threefold cause. Similarly, Yahweh, the covenant God, makes himself known to, saves, and preserves his people by his word and spirit. In the angel of the Lord, whether created angel or the Logos, God, specifically his word, was uniquely and powerfully present. Similarly, he said, the spirit of God is the principle of all life and well-being, as well as holiness and renewal. A threefold, he concluded with this, a threefold divine principle underlies creation, as well as recreation and sustains the entire economy of revelation. Beautifully and comprehensively written. Which is why in seminary we're all assigned to read Botic. We can do no better than what actually the Sunday School looked at today. And that is the Westminster Divines who wrote this into our subordinate standards. The Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 2, Section 3. In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance one power and eternal God the Father God the Son God the Holy Ghost the Father is of none neither begotten nor proceeding the Son is eternally begotten of the Father the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son man could those divides right now as you know Theologians have to, well, if not confuse things, add more to it. So they call this what I just read to you, the ontological trinity, the proceeding one from another. There's another sense called the economic trinity relating to the work, if you will, of the three persons, much of which is incommunicable. So we see from scripture that creation is primarily, not exclusively, the work of the Father. Redemption, primarily the work of the Son. And sanctification, primarily the work of the Holy Spirit, as we saw very briefly in uh, first chapter of Ephesians. The importance of this matter and clarity in this matter really cannot be overstated. Let's take you back a bit in history. The Nicene Creed, which we endorse in this church, in 325 A.D. and the Niceno-Constantinople Creed in 381 A.D. AD, took great pains to address this issue of the triune Godhead with all theologians having not gotten this quite right pre-Reformation. This included Tertullian, Origen, and others primarily because they either did not understand Christ as God or placed him and the Holy Spirit in created or subordinate roles. So this is one of the amazing things when you look back in church history. Orthodoxy hung in dramatic uncertainty. Were the semi-Aryans right that the Son was of a similar essence? as the father not identical but similar what's called homo homoousis. or were the apostles right that the son was of the same essence homoesis? the answer hung on a single vowel the letter i a new word had to be invented the word perichoresis meaning the mutual indwelling of the three persons in each other. A unity, if you will, of will and of action. Jesus actually states this in John fourteen eleven. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of works themselves. Now, I may get criticized here, but the theologian Karl Barth put it this way. God is revealer. God the Father is revealer. God the Son is revelation. And God the Holy Spirit is revealedness. I'm trying to hold this diamond up to you and rotate it through different theologians' eyes, through the ancient church creeds, and allow you to see one facet or another because some of you will hear some of these words one way and they'll be memorable to you and others in another way. In other words, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the one who brings about the intended effect of God's speech within the world. Compromise, though, as I've said, on the doctrine of the Trinity and Scripture quickly falls apart. Again, Bavinck. In the doctrine of the Trinity, he said, Beats the heart of the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. Imagine taking away the Trinity. None other than John Calvin reminds us that the formula, one God in three persons, that's enough, that's sufficient for our faith and practice. And so we say together across the ages, that in every external work of the Trinity, all things are done by the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. Do you see now the importance of this topic of the Trinity? Bob Inc. one more time. The essence of Christianity, he said. The absolute self-revelation of God in the person of Christ and the absolute self-communication of God in the Holy Spirit can only be the ontological trinity. Take away the trinity and all of Christian belief falls apart, he said, like so many leaves blown about by the wind. But what we, as rebellious humans, want to do is to base the doctrine of the trinity on the limits of human rationality using upside-down concepts and words that our minds can comprehend. But that's not how the right-side-up reality of God's creation works. What we know about the Trinity is ultimately and solely due to God's special revelation to us through His Word. You cannot discern. There are footprints there, but you cannot discern the Trinity in general revelation. Reason can clarify. And of course, we use, as theologians, reason and scripture. But only looking backwards and not forwards. Jesus tells us clearly, I am the truth. He then asks you and me, Who do you say I am? God is three in one, God is holy. This is what the Latin theologians called the mysterium tremendum, the awful or awe-inspiring mystery of God. And we all know that the key to Reformed theology, as I've said, is this covenant of redemption, and this again involves all three members of the Godhead to effect our own redemption: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also key is the covenant of grace. We talked about Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. Let me read the third to you. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein, now listen for the Trinity here, wherein he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give to all those that are ordained into eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Did you hear it? All three members of the Godhead involved. As I meditated and struggled to say, how am I going to make this comprehensible? A thought, you can tell me whether it's a brilliant thought, a thought came to me, and it's this. It's the other way around. Are we not privileged to have a God we cannot fully comprehend? What, what could be so awesome a God we could fully comprehend is no God at all. And I think that's maybe the heart of it for me as I studied this and labored to think, how, how will I preach this? How will I think about it? And yet at the same time, while the fullness of the Trinity is incomprehensible to us, we can focus on God's greatness and his infinitely higher nature. Paul alludes to this in Romans 11, verses 33 to 34. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who he asks has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. And that when I read that, that that was the thing that clicked for me. That's what led me into doxology. Oh, my. The tremendous mystery of this does not make me shrink away, but leads me to doxology, leads me to awe-inspired of the God I seek to serve. So we have 3 coexistent, co co-eternal persons who are God. Now, one of the questions I often get is whether the Trinity, and I've alluded to it already, is evident in the Old Testament or just in the New. The answer, of course it is. There's no disconnect between the Old and the New. They are a complete and seamless record of what God wants us to understand about himself and his covenant with us. Let me do a very quick tour. OK, this is really This is like Chinese weather balloon level. Okay? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we noted earlier, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is plural. From the very beginning, scripture alludes to Trinity. In Isaiah 48-16, are you ready for this? Count it in your own mind. Approach me and listen to this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who is that speaking? It's Jesus speaking in Isaiah about God the Father and the spirit that was sent. How about the New Testament? And again, I'm just scratching the surface. Matthew 28. You all know this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and further, teach them this. God is telling us, starting with the reality of the Trinity, the truth, which we are to go and teach. John chapter 10 and verse 24, the Jews surrounded Jesus and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Skipping to verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. What is that a statement of? Deity. Jesus is God. John fourteen fifteen through 26, I won't read it, but speaks directly of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Counselor, who is the Spirit of Truth. 1 Peter 1, Paul writes to the, to the Diaspora this, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, To be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, clear indication of the Trinity. And we could go on through many, many verses of Scripture. The theologian Boardman summarized it this way, and we'll wrap up here in just a bit. The Father is all the fullness of the Godhead invisible. The Son is all the fullness of the Godhead manifested. The Spirit is all the fullness of the Godhead acting immediately upon the Scripture. So, the Godhead invisible, the Father, the Son manifested, and the Holy Spirit acting. Now, is this just an exercise of those of us that study Scripture and and try to explain Scripture to others? I'm glad you asked. The answer is no. No. There are, in fact, practical benefits to us. I have seven of them here, and you can probably think of more. Number one, we worship, pray, and confess to the Father in the Son by the Holy Spirit. I could stop there, and that's enough. But we go on. Number two, we are baptized and blessed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted as children of the Father, as co-heirs with the Son, as mediator, and united to the Son by the Spirit. Number four, all salvation, blessing, and every blessedness, this is from Baving, have their threefold cause in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number five, stripping our theology of the Son or of the Holy Spirit as God forces you to strip away salvation and communion with God. A horrible faith because it implies, therefore, remember when I said it would all fall apart. It implies that regeneration, faith, conversion, repentance and sanctification are no longer realities for us. Number six, to strip the Holy Spirit of his deity is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What does Matthew say in chapter 12, verse 31 and he actually goes into 32, that Christ states that to blaspheme the spirit is a what? Unpardonable sin. Lastly, seven. This one also from Bobbing. The doctrine of the Trinity makes God known to us as distinct from the world as truly God. So, brothers and sisters, I'm going to finish here by repeating three simple and eternally unchanging truths. If we remember nothing else, we just remember these three things. God is three persons. Each of these persons is fully God. There is but one God. May we glorify the triune God in our understanding, our desires, our prayers, our beliefs, and our actions. Pray with me if you will. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how grateful we are to have a God like you, one God in three persons, an awesome God, so great that we, your created, cannot fully comprehend your greatness. Thank you, Lord, for creation, for revelation, for your word, and for redemption through your gift of a son to us. We are grateful and do seek your face, Lord, in every aspect of our lives and being. Here, Lord, tonight, this Sabbath day, the prayers of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Is one more hymn? It's time to worship the triune God. To thee, great one in three, eternal praises be. Not just today, but forevermore. Would you stand to your feet? Amen. Oh, mm-hmm. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go now, each of you, into your mission field, remembering always that we live koram deo, before the face of the living God. Bless you all. Next week we're going to talk about the omnis of God. of God. <coughs>